0: Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here and we're working on part 2 of the Burger No BSBC segment that we've been doing. We have Brian and Emil on the line again for our part 2 discussion. Good morning, guys. Great to have you on.
1: Good morning. Good to be on. Good
0: morning, Frank. Thank you. How's everybody doing? Everybody safe? No drama, no 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 in, uh, issues at home? Everything's good?
1: Uh, just getting a little restless, Um, eager for the season to start and to start shooting some of these matches that have been getting pushed.
0: For sure. Yeah, I
2: mean, I've got rifles that I'm, you know, I'm dying to shoot, um, but there's no competition. So yeah, it's a little, a little annoying.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So everybody's kind of sitting home and around right now and, and we got some great questions in, but before we jump into that, uh, I, I wanted to go over, uh, the, the, you guys launched a bunch of new products at Shot show and we did do a podcast and talk about that at shot but then you've been releasing since shot and even up to this week new products that includes uh, you know things that I don't think people would realize. So I want to go over some of the the new product stuff you guys have and then talk about you know the way you guys are loading it and and, and where you're seeing these products fit and And then we'll go into some of the questions and talk some ballistics with Brian and things like that. Um, I think that'd be a great way to start.
2: Sure, Frank. Um, so we've uh, we've recently launched uh, in addition to all of our long range hybrid target bullets, which are uh, we have a meLA reduction technology with that which that's basically we're closing the points of the of the MIPLAs, or the ends of the bullet. Um, which is helping for helping us to minimize the, the BC, uh, uh, standard deviation. It's keeping those, that, that BC variation less than 1%, which is, you know, almost unheard of, uh, in the industry. So, uh, you know, we've got an 85.5 grain in 22 cal. Um, we have a 109 grain in, in six mil long range hybrid target, uh, We've got, you know, the 190 grain and 7 mil and in 30 cal, we have a 208 grain and a 220 grain. And uh, in 6.5, we've got a 144 grain. Uh, And those are all, those bullets have all been doing extremely well for us. And we're getting a lot of great feedback on them, especially the 109 that we have, we have literally not stopped making that bullet since we announced it. I think we're on our third production run. Um, Recently, um, over the last couple of weeks we released our six millimeter 108 grain elite hunter so again this is a this is a very high bc um, bullet with our hunter jacket um, and we launched that on the 13th and going back uh, at the end of April we launched another 6.5 millimeter bullet a hybrid target bullet in 153.5 grain and this bullet is perfect for You know, your 6.5 PRCs, your SOMs, uh, things like that. I have a 6.5 284 that I built specifically to shoot this bullet. And it is a monster bullet for BC. Um, You know, it brings those 6.5s up to and equal with the big 30 cals and 7 mils for wind drifts and transonic range. So I'm really excited about that one. And then we have a new powder which is N555, so Vitavori N555, which is shipping right now to retailers. And that powder was developed specifically for cartridges like 6.5 Creedmoor um, uh, to be right in that same burn rate as 4350 uh, to give people another option. And and I know Brian's got a bit of uh, experience doing some load testing and powder testing with that powder. I mean, he can talk about that in a little bit, but we're really excited because for a while, Vitevori didn't really have a a powder that fit in the pocket for 6.5 Creedmoor. And this one is, this is kind of Vitevori's uh, answer for that one little spot in the burn rate where we had a gap.
0: Nice, nice. Everybody's always chasing the 6.5 powders because it's they're, they're always sold out, like you said, and, it, and it's so hard to come down. So giving somebody another option, and especially in the Vitivori class, because guys really love that powder. Um, it, it, It's not quite as easy to find for some people, but they, they're definitely fans of it when they do lock onto it. Uh, so it, it, it's great to see that 6.5 variant come in there. And then um, just real quick, I want to touch on the 6 millimeters. I mean, we're seeing it on our side. You guys are probably seeing it on on more of the F-class um, side too. But the six millimeters are really just—I mean, I think they're starting to stand out. Um, you know, like six-five did when it first came out over the three-zero-eights. Um, you, you, you know, there was so much conversation around it, and you're seeing such great results. And now everybody going to the six millimeters for competition. You guys are definitely stacking up there in the six millimeters. Uh, to to support that, and you know, between the the GT that came out, uh, you know, the six Creed more in the in the different calibers like that, I, I just think these six millimeters are are you know doing a lot with these BCs uh, where before they were so light, now they seem to be coming into themselves.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's really there's uh there's a lot to like about them. I mean, you got lower recoil. Um, you're pushing a high BC at high velocity, and you know for a while. I think one of the limitations on on six millimeter, just like seven millimeter, were bullet makers really weren't making bullets Hang for on. things that were I was other say, than. Uh,
0: there you go. Right you're, there? Yeah, you were getting some kind of weird bubbly static going on for a sec, but you're back. Sorry about okay. that.
2: Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean you know people were six millimeter bullets were really limited to production rifle making you know so uh if you had the different six millimeters 243s that were out there that's really all bullet makers made them for but now that everybody's embraced the fact that look people are building rifles and and kind of creating calibers around bullets that are available now the size of limit on what people uh what what bullet makers will make and you know with with the knowledge that they'll probably sell as well
0: the, the twist rate helped that they they kind of corrected. I think like you're talking that 243 and those old factory guns, the the twist rate really helped that we kind of switched to more what they. I guess a lot of people simplify it and call it a long range twist rate versus what they were doing originally for the hunting rifles. You know they were really in the in the high. What well, they used to hover around the 14s, I think, and now we're we're mid sevens. So, um, you know, I think that helped bring it into itself. Yeah. Maybe-
1: yeah. I agree. That's, that's one of the things that's been most interesting for me to watch over the years is how things like that have changed. You know, that average shooter gets into something, selects a cartridge, a bullet, and it either works or it doesn't, you know, they, it, maybe it works at hundred or 200 yards, but not so well at long range. And sometimes the shooters are aware of why it's limited and why it doesn't work. Other times it just doesn't work and they move on and don't really ever understand why. But I think, you know, you hit on it, Frank, with the 243. What we're talking about is it has been a a speeding up of the twist rate, which has allowed using uh, higher performance bullets, which now all of a sudden it works at long range. You know, and it's been by design in the industry, like people who make barrels and bullets know what it takes to shoot a higher BC bullet but there have been constraints in the past, right? Like when you try to spin something at 3,100 feet a second in a one in seven or eight twist, that's, that's really high RPMs. And it makes a bullet very sensitive to even the smallest amount of imbalance. And we haven't always been able to make bullets well enough balanced to work in that application. And so, you know, back saying that 40s or 50s or 60s whenever someone picked the standard 12 or 14 twist rate in six millimeter they probably landed on that because if they tried anything higher performance that needed a faster twist it wouldn't work and it wouldn't work because bullets weren't as well balanced at least not production bullets back then so things kind of get constrained by what's possible in manufacturing in the in the time and then as time goes on Um, More precision manufacturing capabilities are available, which has ripple effects that may not be obvious, um, but we make use of them in the shooting industry, you know, making these longer, heavier bullets now, getting cartridges like six millimeters, performing like, you know, 300 wind mags, used to need a really a lot of power and energy to get the performance that we're getting out of much smaller cases these days. And it's interesting to draw the line, you know, connect the dots back to what made that possible.
0: Nice, nice, and I want to kind of touch on to uh, the, the, the closing of the me plats. You guys are doing that because this was something they have tools for this. They there was tools where people would get a me plat tool and they would go in there and they would basically fine tune, trim, uniform, and clean up the me plats on these bullets. Which you know the, the the way it is when you're after after the fact. It, it it kind of becomes a little bit different because you're taking material away and, and and you know how is it designed and can you get in there but you guys doing it right out of the gate. I mean we're shooting a little longer pointier bullets than before and you guys closing this up in a uniform way it during production, that's a big deal. I mean that's that's something I mean it's the joke of, of, of Sniper, you know, Tom Berenger, you know, these babies come with burrs. That's what he was talking about was sort of like, you know, the 118 the, LR. they You know, that you look at the, the, the open boat tail, however you want to do it, or hollow point there. It always had kind of a little nastiness to it. And you guys are kind of creating or, or uh, fixing that by uniforming it during your production.
1: Right. right. That's, and that's a great continuation to uh, bullets getting longer and twist rates getting faster. This stuff's all related. So whenever you make a bullet on a longer jacket, you know, getting into your 105, 109 grain, six millimeter bullets, or your anything in six, five over 140 grains, you're drawing an incredible amount of jacket material really long. And that's way more difficult than it is to draw a shorter jacket. And in difficult the sort of the, the residue, the remainder ends up at the tip of the bullet. And like you're talking about, Frank, it's not always pretty. Um, now, that's kind of what makes it hard to do. Well, hand loaders have been dealing with that for years, like you said, with aftermarket pointing. But See, the thing is, you have whenever you do that in an aftermarket operation in a press, you, you almost have to length sort the bullets before you point them because the way it's done, like with a wooden die, is the bullet is pushed up into the pointing die from the base. So if you have longer and shorter bullets in the box and you don't change the die setting, you're kind of crushing the longer bullets and not pointing the shorter bullets enough. So to do it in aftermarket, to do it right as an aftermarket process requires a lot of time in sorting and pointing. Now, if you do that and do it right, you you can achieve a reduction in VC variation which is an important thing I'll get to in a minute. But what's so cool about Berger's process is that in the process of doing it, it's not done like a wooden die where it pushes the bullet up from the bottom. The bullet tips are pointed in the same way, uh, whether they're long or short. So basically what that process does is it takes a bullet, whatever the length or BC variation was going to be on the bullet, it basically cuts it in a third. So uh, like a 6mm 105 hybrid already has... A BC variation less than 1% like the normal version, but pointing them Reduces that by two-thirds. You brought it down to a third of the original variation by the new reduction technology, so and to put that in perspective, I know that BC variation is not like nearly as common to talk about as standard deviation of muzzle velocity for example. Everybody knows, you know, all long range shooters know about muzzle velocity SD because we measure it with chronograph and we work hard to reduce it with hand loading. But uh, BC variation is is one of those variables that is getting to be important in the like the chain of variables to hit long range targets. You know, when when a thousand yards was a long shot, um, BC variation, most of the bullets were good enough on it, you know, a percent and a half or two percent SD on BC you could hit targets at a thousand yards and not notice that, but a thousand yards isn't a long shot anymore. You know, you're talking 12, 1500 plus is getting to be very common. And at those distances, if you have, you can't live with the same amount of BC variation that you can within a thousand yards. And I'm talking about the shot to shot BC variation of every bullet in the box. Um, and the further out you go, the taller your group gets for the same amount of BC variation. And in the same way that manufacturing processes had to improve in order to make these longer bullets even viable at the twist rates they need, um, manufacturing techniques are once again improving to reduce this variable that has become a substantial problem in hitting long distance targets. Um, it's a problem that I'm not sure all the bullet manufacturers understand because it's kind of new. Uh, the means to, I say new. It's always been there. It's just never mattered as much as it does now that we're trying to hit further targets. And the means to measure it is not as easy. You know, you can't shoot a group at 100 yards or do anything with a chronograph that's going to tell you your BC variation. You know, if your groups are tall at long range, it could be a a number of things causing it. You almost need a Doppler radar or an Ailer system or something that's meant to measure ballistic coefficients specifically at long distance in order to even know if your bullets are flying consistent or not and you know that's something that we test all of the burger bullet prototypes before they become you know um, official bullets or we launch them to make sure that the bc variation is less than 1% so that we're not you know we're not putting a long range bullet out there that's going to uh, suffer at, at that distance for that reason
0: Nice. Yep. No, that was a great explanation, and and so you, you should kind of. Well, I'll I'll kind of jump in real quick. Is guys don't need to go out there and you know they, they they can check their vertical spread at distance. So the longest shot that they have available to them, they might want to go out and say, "Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna really hold hard. I want to check where my vertical spread is on that target and see what that measurement is." But it's not something they need to go chase a million times over. It's kind of like that. Well, we don't get the answer until after we shoot it, and so it, it's not going to help you on the next one as much as maybe doing it over and over. But it's a good, it's a good to know kind of information out there. Like, where's your vertical spread? And and because not everybody's doing load development, but load development guys know this. They check that stuff more often. But the the person out there listening who's not doing hand loads may not understand, you know, it's not something they need to chase every week.
1: Right. Yeah. You definitely want to minimize it. Um, but you know, it's, it's hard to know what to do. Like take the standard ladder test, for example, that a lot of, uh, long range guys do where you shoot progressive charges from, you know, through a a range of powder charges and you're looking for clusters on say a thousand yard target. And, now, the assumption of that entire process is that the only variation in your vertical impact is going to be how the muzzle velocity interacts with the barrel harmonics, right? That's the principle of it. Well, the assumption there is that all of the bullets are flying with the same DC, and that is an assumption that that we really need to break. You know, we're talking about how, you know, Berger, we make bullets, we have made it an objective, a very serious objective to minimize that shot to shot BC variation um, but it's still there in a small amount I mean if you're looking for clusters of an inch or two of vertical at a thousand yards the the BC variation has an effect on that it's not just muzzle velocity and barrel harmonics um, and with other I mean there's some bullets that have many times like five or ten times the amount of BC variation that burger bullets have because I don't know that they're really looking for it especially at distance when a bullet stability starts to get challenged with transonic effects.
0: Nice. No, I, I, I can definitely appreciate that. And and I do think that's something you guys work on really hard through the, like the ballistic lab work you guys do is that you're looking at all these like micro fine variables and then saying, okay, well, we can wait this one here. Well, wait a minute. Now, when we go out here, this one then, you know, jumps to the front of the line where over here it was in the middle of the line and, and so that's, I think is, is a really great resource that you're out there putting out that data and, 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 explaining that to people to say, yeah, we're looking at all these variables on such a microscopic level because eventually it will become important the farther you shoot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The further out you go, different things become important. Like, like I was saying, most guys know they'll have a tall group at a thousand yards if their muzzle velocity standard deviation is bad. But if you, let's say, take like 7 feet per second standard deviations, pretty good. This is analysis I just did this morning, so the numbers are kind of fresh. So if you have like a 6'5 Creedmoor at 1,200 meters, and you have ammo with a 7 foot per second standard deviation of muzzle velocity and a 1% BC variation, you will improve your hit percentage on an IPSC target Just as much if you go from 7 feet per second to 4 feet per second standard deviation as you will going from 1% to half a percent BC variation. So to put that in context, like if you're a hand loader, you know how much work it takes to move a load from 7 feet per second SD to 4. Okay, that's really hard, not even always possible. Um, But with now take the BC variation, moving it from 1% to half a percent. That's basically what the long range hybrid target bullets do is they get the BC variation at roughly half a percent or less. And that has as much of an effect at 1200 meters with a six, five Creedmoor as moving your muzzle velocity standard deviation from seven to four. And that's, that's what comes in the box. Like If you got standard bullets, you'd have to sort them and point them to get that consistency. But the mupler reduction technology, that's what that is all about, is minimizing that and basically giving you the effect of dramatically reducing your muzzle velocity variation.
0: Very cool. Hey, I got a quick question. This came up. I I recently did an interview with uh, Frank Green from Bartland. And this kind of plays into all the same conversation we were having in, in terms of twist rates and things like that. He was kind of like suggesting on the bullet manufacturer side that we should be looking at the length more so for twist rate now because we're, we're, we're playing with lengths a lot more than weights because, you know, we basically, we, we look at, okay, how heavy is my bullet? I need this twist rate. But he's, he's suggesting we should start looking at how long is my bullet and pairing twist rates up to that. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think I, I think I see where he's coming from because there's a lot of solid bullets, especially in ELR, that stability is a big concern for. And those solid bullets are longer than conventional bullets for the same weight. And they force you into twist rates that are faster than you might think um, because the bullet is so much longer. And it's one of those things where it, it depends on how you look at it. If you choose to only look at length You could make sense out of stability and twist rate relations, but the full picture really does include the weight of the bullet. Um, You know, length and weight are probably, and caliber are the three main attributes of the bullet that you need to, um, you know, have a, to determine the twist rate that's required. Um, It goes beyond that. Like, if you really wanted to know what it takes to stabilize a bullet, you have to also know. About the static margin of the bullet, you know how far is the center of pressure in front of the center of gravity. You have to know how the mass is distributed within the bullet uh, radially. So, is it heavy on the edge and light in the middle, or vice versa? So, there's there's a ton of stuff that's important. Um, but to Frank's observation, length is definitely if it's not the most important thing, it's one of the most important things. But no single variable can be considered in isolation when you're talking about stability. All of it comes together.
0: Nice, nice. Um, I, I was going to kind of get into, but that, this kind of brings us into that. We we had a big question last week that talks about center of gravity. So, um, and this was one of the uh, ones. And so I'll kind of read it off here because it is a little bit bigger question. And 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 maybe you can kind of uh, you know address it because it's in the same vein of what we've been talking about. So the question was, uh, and he has it in multi-part here, but it's one, as a bullet's center of gravity moves forward, um, does it benefit ELR transitional potential? So he wants to know, as the center of gravity is moving forward, how does that benefit an ELR? Uh, Do do they think the center of gravity will become a published spec for bullets going forward uh, to compare a bullet's transitional stability, especially for ELR? And then he's got some follow-ups in there, but maybe we'll kind of rest on that for a second. And then I can, cause he's got like another two parts to this question.
1: Right. Okay. So as the center, the first part, as the center of gravity moves forward, does that help with stability? Um, so to answer that part of the question, it, again, stability is a really complicated thing. And I see where he's going. Moving the center of gravity forward is how you create stability with a, Fin stabilized thing like an arrow or a rocket. Okay, it has a center of gravity in front, so it will naturally fly that way. Bullets are the opposite. Bullets have the center of pressure in front of the center of gravity because they don't have fins and they create stability through gyroscopic uh, rigidity, the spinning mass. Um, And so, but there is still a static margin, so the further the distance from the center of pressure on the nose back to the center of gravity, the greater that distance is, the more spin it takes. In other words, the harder it is to stabilize. So moving the center of gravity, if you designed a bullet that had a center of gravity moved further forward, that would close the distance of that static margin and make the bullet more inherently stable, uh, make it more statically stable. Now, there's there's other attributes of dynamic stability for a bullet that may or may not be helped by changing that static margin, uh, there's also considerations about the moments of inertia for a bullet. Where if you spin the bullet on its axis versus if you rotate it, um, think about like a a dumbbell for weightlifting. You can twist it real easy on its axial um, axis, but if you try to rotate it long ways, that's how trapeze guys balance, right? Because it's really hard to spin that mass on its long axis. So. Those, like the resistance of something to spinning on different axes, that's called moments of inertia. And the ratio of the axial to transverse moment of inertia on a bullet is something that is very important to stability and is not really accounted for by just moving the center of gravity. Um, the final thing that makes that a, a complicated uh, question is the this moving the center of gravity forward is, does one thing but it's in relation to the center of pressure and the center of pressure moves as the bullet flies that's part of why bullets get less stable at transonic because the center of pressure moves forward gets further away from the center of gravity and it just causes problems Um, so that i can't say that there is a direct answer to that question because it depends on so many other things Um, and then the second part about publishing what the center of gravity is You can determine the center of gravity of a bullet with a pocket knife. Uh, The center of gravity is simply where it balances. So if you kind of like try to teeter, we've all probably done this with a spoon on our cereal bowl, right? Just try to get it to balance there. You just get the bullet to find its point where it balances on on an edge, and that's the center of gravity.
0: Yep. He, he what he's trying to do is he wants what he his bottom line is you explained it perfect brian it came in uh you, you hit all his points so we don't have to expand but his bottom line was he thinks for buying choices having that added center of gravity data point combined with sectional density overall length and things like that would help him pick a better elr bullet is what he's looking for and then part of what he was trying to see is if this, if it was viable, if the center of gravity was moving, but you're explaining the center of pressure is moving um, it, it, the, the way it is. He was just wondering, like, would Berger consider waiting the front of the bullet and putting a copper tip or something, like a solid copper tip, I guess is what he means, um, or something like an A-tip type, but to play with that a little bit. So he's asking about plastic tip versus the A tip versus a solid copper tip, I guess.
1: Yeah, that, those are those are all things that I've wondered about too, and did you know, did the math on, did the design. and it's it doesn't always come out how you think. Um, from an inertial point of view, like if you just look at the gyroscopic stabilizing factors, Um, of a bullet that's spinning you get the most amount of rigidity on that axis by concentrating the mass away from the center of rotation so if you had a bullet of a given caliber and weight the best thing to do is to kind of make it empty on the inside and make it very dense around the outside basically make a ring of rotating mass as far away from the axis as possible that would make a very stable configuration as opposed to the other way Um, would do the opposite. Now, one way that you can go about that is with a plastic tip that protrudes down through the core of the bullet. And that, that kind of does that, right? Is it sort of voids the, the heavy stuff, at least on the tip out towards the edge. But the, the counterproductive thing of plastic tips for stability is that they push the center of pressure further out in front of the mass and that has a destabilizing effect. So, plastic tips—the way that they're configured now—they basically have offsetting factors as far as stability goes. They're a benefit to the rotating, you know, the the rigidity of the rotating mass, but they're um, they have a, a negative effect as far as putting the center of pressure out further in front of the bullet and increasing that overturning. Um, the destabilizing effects aerodynamically.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I so think, yeah. Lo-
1: like lots of things in design, it's a give and take.
0: Yeah, no, you're, 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 you you're nailed this question good. And, and that's that's a great way of putting it, that there's the trade-offs. So like you just said, the give and take. So you, you, you can kind of do this to a certain degree. If you go a little too far with it, then you, you, you start running into the negative side of things. And so it's that balancing act, like you were saying, of, of finding how, how much can we get away with uh, before it starts to become a negative. Yeah.
1: You're-
0: and,
2: Frank, you know, my only my only comment on that, Frank, is I think I, – am I imagining, like, Brian, listen, might be the only 8-year-old.
0: Oh, we're losing Emil again. He, he's, he's got a weird connection. Emil, you got a weird – we might have to call you back in, dude. Um, We can keep Brian on the line and, and maybe we'll get – because uh gets this bubble. You hear that? Can you hear it too, Brian? Or
1: is it yeah, just- I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try muting myself and see if he's any clearer.
0: Okay, Amel, go ahead and try now with him, and we'll see mutant because you're getting a weird kind of uh, uh, like a static or a um a bubble kind of distortion. Okay, how about now? Yeah, sounded Yep, you sound better now.
2: I also took my call off a of Wi-Fi. That might have been the issue. But I, yeah, my only comment was that you know. I think Brian Litz might have been the only eight-year-old balancing a spoon on a cereal bowl to measure the center of gravity.
0: <laughs> I, I, I got where he was coming from. We all do it. We A lot of us did it on our finger, though, you know, balance the spoon on our finger. Um, but, but, yeah, he was there trying to figure it out. And he's probably adding little bits of milk and things and cereal, you know, nuggets of cereal to, to play with the balance a little bit. Um, one quick question on the thing— the 22 stuff, and, and I don't mean um Rimfire 22, but we're seeing like 22 Creedmore, the Valkyries, and you know, 22 Ackley. And, and guys are dabbling on the PRS side of things around and for trainers too, around the 22 uh caliber uh offerings that you guys have, like the uh the 85.5 grain is, is the great example of that. The the one thing and, and I'm, I'm I'm trying to see about Brian's take on this or Emil, if you have uh, any insight as well. We're seeing still like really mixed results with the Valkyrie. Like I consider what I'm doing with the Valkyrie to have really good luck with it, and my accuracy's been good. I've competed with it with a gas gun uh, a couple times. I have a bolt gun made for it, and and I don't I don't struggle. But I'm reading online we have a lot of guys that. And it's not like, you know, oh, I'm at a minute. It's usually a guy will say, well, I'm getting half-minute groups, everything's good, and then the next guy's like, well, I'm at two minutes. Like, there's very – it seems to be this wide swing, and I'm wondering if you guys seen anything um, either through the 22 Creedmore, the Valkyrie, or 223 AI in terms of stability since kind of we're talking that stability side of things because this seems to – they, they – they act like it's a twist rate and a stability issue, but then you can use all the same twist rates and all the same, you know, bullets in a different uh, rifle or, you know, caliber in a way, and it works, you know? Like, they can get a .22 Creedmoor to go really fast, but if you get a Valkyrie to go too fast, then it starts to mess up. You can get an Ackley to go pretty good, you know? So I'm wondering if you guys had any insight into the twenty-two variations that that are being reported. My only insight,
2: and I'll let Brian talk on this, but my only insight on this, Frank, is that you know it seems that you know when you get down to the the, the Valkyrie and the the two two three size cases, that all those little variables become much more important. You know, it's a scaling issue. You know, so um, and also, you know, sometimes those, the the in the twenty two caliber bullets, the uh, unless they're made to be very tolerant to seat, like our 80.5 full bore uh, 22 caliber bullet, that bullet is literally bulletproof. You can jump that thing as far as you want. It's an, it's very, very easy to shoot. But once you get to longer nose bullets, you get higher BCs out of them, they become more finicky uh, in terms of seat depth and things like that. So you know that might be part of the issue as well. You know, and it's also harder to get those low standard deviations in the smaller cases than it is to get in a larger size case,
0: I believe. And uh, for to your credit, what you're saying, uh, Emil, the it seems like because everybody wants to jump immediately to the 90s. But then when I talk to everybody, guys that are are working with the 80s and the 85s, they're having fantastic results. Like you said, super forgiving. Everything's good. But, you know, everybody looks at sort of the Valkyrie casing and says, well, I want to do the 90s. I want to do the 90s. Now, when I had jumped into it through uh, JP, they would kind of wave me off the 90s. So I never went down the 90 path originally and and, and just out of luck, the 88s came out. And, and so I, I went straight to 88s and never had a problem. But I know we're all looking and and we're all talking about like if Prime or somebody will come out with a Valkyrie load, we want to go to the 85 load, you guys' stuff. Because between the 80 grain and the 85 grain, we see zero drama between those two bullets with anything. It's when we get up to the 88s and the 90s is where people are having the bigger problems. I mean, I even have it where like the 75s and 60s are working good. Everybody wants to be that slightly heavier into the 88s to 90s.
1: Yeah, that's, I'll start out by um, agreeing with what Emil said about the small differences matter more in smaller calibers. Um, And it is also my experience that it's harder to get lower SDs in the 22 cals uh, than it is larger calibers. Um, There's other things, uh, we'll continue the stability theme. Uh, related to stability that that challenge the smaller calibers more as well so stability favors larger calibers uh disproportionately like you know the longest heaviest bullets that we have to shoot in in 30 cal you know you look at the 230 even the 245 class of bullets you know a nine twist maybe an eight and a half is all you'd really need to get stability with them and a lot of guys run eight twists with no problem you come into like the six fives and sevens now you're looking at an eight twist, you know, um, now you go down to 243 or or seven twist you, by the time you get down to 22 caliber, you're forced to shoot us, you know, somewhere in, in the area of six or six and a half twist. And those twist rates, there comes a point where the twist is so tight that, uh, especially when you're running things really fast, that I think it becomes challenging from a structural point of view, as far as, you know, physically damaging the bullet. And I, I I don't know exactly what the mechanism is. I just know that every barrel that we have that's a six twist in any caliber, and we've had them from 375 to 22 in 243, none of those six twist barrels shot good groups. Um, starting at seven twist and up, we can shoot good groups in all calibers. But six twist, there's something about it that we can't consistently shoot good groups with. Um, you know, and So I think that's part of it. I think another part of it, So that's part of the drama is that when you have to go below seven twist, for whatever reason, you just have precision issues. I think another part of the issue is the, the psychological aspect of, you know, guys, 22 is a smaller caliber. Okay. Performance scales with caliber. If you're going to step down and shoot a 22 caliber for, for whatever good reasons there are to do it, you should be prepared to accept a step down in performance you know, you can't always have your cake and eat it too. If you want to go to a, a, a 223, you have to be ready for that to shoot lower performance than a 6 mil or 6.5. And I think a lot of guys don't get that. They try to go down there, they look at the performance of the nine degree bullets on paper, and they think if I just push the pressure a little higher and and all this shit adds up to where they have created a volatile combination to try to match the performance of their competitors on paper. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure Emil can talk about the attempts for 90-degree BLDs and service rifles. We've seen it in the match rifles. Um, occasionally, a guy like will get it working for a match or two. You know, shoot some good groups and good scores at a thousand yards, but no one has ever that I know of lasted a full season uh, being successful with 90-degree bullets in 223. Um, the 85.5 that you mentioned, um, we were very aware of this this, ish, this limiting issue. As you know, when, whenever we developed that bullet, we knew the 80.5 was good, uh, but we and very you know tolerant and easy to shoot, like Emil was describing. But we knew the guys wanted something better, and we wanted to make a bullet that was as good as possible without having any of the issues. So we tested a lot of variations on that bullet. We made that bullet in half grain increments through that entire space and radar tested all of them and shot groups with all of them and sort of found that point where we could make it up until that. Now we could have made a higher performance bullet, a higher BC bullet, um, you know, like some others and other calibers have higher performance, higher BCs than we do, but our, limit like our self-imposed limit on performance is the level that we can achieve while also maintaining consistency and we really refined that on that 85 and a half by shooting all those different variations with radar and seeing just where it started having problems so that consistency that you're seeing with that bullet is is very much by design and through testing you know a, as a deliberate
0: goal it's it's it, it shows. I mean, I know when I talk to people because they go, gee, well, you're having great luck with the Valkyrie. And, and and like you just said, I think your explanation is one of the best that, that I've heard um, to say that the, the performance difference. And and I honestly never looked at it that way. I just I tend to settle for things and go, OK, that's good. I like it where it's at. You know, I'll move on from there and I won't chase it down to a quarter minute accuracy. Um it's, you know, whenever you talk to somebody who, who might have purchased a Valkyrie or doing something and they're struggling, it's always go look at the Burger 80 or go look at the 85-5 because we have found, or at least, you know, through the experience level, that that is your best point of balance and performance in that 22 realm, uh, you know, for bullet-wise. I mean, it's like when you look at everything out there and you put it all together, it's like, well, these are these are the two best choices one can fall on so I think you guys did a great job with that
1: yeah yeah thank you and I, I think that that mindset that you said Frank about you, you get something working and you don't try to you know squeeze more out of it than what it's meant to give I think that is that's the correct approach for 223 match gun shooters or precision gun shooters is get it to perform like a 223 and you'll be happy you'll be satisfied. If you try to get it to perform like a two forty three or a six five, you're gonna spend your day struggling.
0: well, and then and that's that's the bottom line, man. That's great, great advice for people, and I think we'll carry that forward. that that'll be one of my takeaway quotes from this series uh, because that is a huge amount of uh, I mean there's probably ten pages plus of discussion on guys with the Valkyrie, where, like I said, fifty percent. Are in that half minute and in, in happy and in, and going, and then there's this other 50 percent that are just out of the ballpark, and I think they're just pushing variables a little bit. So it, it's it's definitely um it's definitely a topic that we're talking about. Um, switch yep. it, switch. It, Go ahead.
1: I was going to ask Gamal with his experience in the AMU if if he ever I know that you guys tried and know a lot of other guys who tried to get like the 90 grain bullets to work in the service guns. Has, it, has anyone been successful with that? As far as I knew, they had intermittent results.
2: Um, the official answer on that was it worked great until it did not. <laughs> 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 so we would have uh, we have one guy shoot a 200, you know, which is the highest score, set a national record. Rifle, same guy, same lot of ammunition, uh, would have an on paper would have an off paper miss at a thousand yards. Oh. It was just on the edge of 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 possibility. So very very inconsistent. And after a while, we just kind of stopped doing it. Um, the, with ninety grain and two two three, the only people I've seen have you know fairly consistent success are the long range NRA prone guys, and they're using 31, 32 inch barrels um, with the ninety grain and and. Uh, and even those guys, it doesn't work
0: every time. In their gain twist as well, they're like the fourteen to six twist guys. The those guys doing the two two three, they go to Bartland and they do a gain twist, but it's a really really like twice as aggressive. I think it's fourteen to six or something they do, don't they? Well, I mean,
2: most of the guys I know are using a straight six and a half twist barrel. Um, but like Brian says, it's just really hard to do consistently all the time in that caliber. I mean, it's a great bullet on paper. Um, and when it works, it works, but it works until it doesn't.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> my, bolt, my bolt gun's a gain twist for that because it's a longer barrel. My JP's a straight twist. Um, the bolt gun is, uh, he just told me what it was six, it was like six and a half to seven and change or something, or six and three, uh, 6.7. I think I went 7.5 to 6.7 is where my gain twist is for that. And and I was able to shoot even the bad 90s, the, the original load that they they sort of uh, Gen 2'd them or whatever. It's probably Gen 10. But um, that, that those will even work in my Valkyrie out of the gain twist. I Because I, I had somebody who had a case and it was the old stuff. And they're like, hey, it won't shoot. It's terrible if you want it. And I took and shot it and, and it works out of my bolt gun. And, you
2: know, there's different metrics for performance, you know, like in, in the style of shooting we were doing, you know, you had to have less than 10 inches of vertical over 20 shots, um, over 20 shot string in order to a performance a success, you know, so it depends on your, on people's expectations too. Yeah, that's why the F class guys are so picky because in F class, you're. If your shot is more, is more than a half minute at distance, high or low, uh, you just lost a point. So and then so yeah, it depends on on success. I mean, our guys would keep them on the target. They probably hold probably less than twenty inches of vertical at a thousand yards. But for our, for our application, that wasn't good enough.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And 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 I think like had Brian explained it's that expectation it's it's and I never really looked at it that the two two threes I just in my mind I always kind of thought they were throwaway rounds they're training rounds they're 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 you know spray and pray kind of deal with the carbines and stuff so I never tried to squeeze that performance out of them and use them as a cost saving measure versus a performance and accuracy thing so to me it's reps not you know looking to do this uh To to the nth degree, I guess. So I I think Brian's explanation of that was really telling and really good uh, for people out there listening to to put it into perspective. So, um, hey, I I wanted to while we got Brian there too. Let's we want to guys had asked about um Brian when you had got cut off last week. About truing inside a thousand yards—that's like you were right in the middle of that when when your your Skype sort of ran out the the, the change in your in your meter. Um, but anyway, uh, so if we can kind of go into just inside a thousand yard truing for software for guys like what would be best practice when they don't have a- access to use the truing feature as it's designed.
1: Yep. So I, I don't recall right where that conversation left off two weeks ago, but I'll just yes, pick it start up there. Over.
0: Yeah, we can just start over. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so truing within a thousand yards, um, I don't think you should have to true within a thousand yards if you have a chronograph. If you have a decent chronograph and uh, are you shooting a bullet that's in the applied ballistics library that we've measured a BC for, There's, and you're doing everything else right with the solver and you know your range, there's no good reason why you should have to true. I mean, more than a click or two inside a thousand yards, we usually don't see any error at that sort of a distance, but it's very common for guys not to have chronographs. So I think, or to not trust them. So I think that it's, that would be the number one application for truing. Like if I didn't have a chronograph, the way I would determine my muzzle velocity is to true the muzzle velocity in the solver. And you know, that's what I would go with. Um, and so I think the the principles of truing are that you want to do it at as a far of a distance that that makes sense and that's possible. So I wouldn't advise truing like certainly not at 400 500 unless you unless you got something subsonic, you know, then you can true at 300 or 400 yards. But if you have a, you know, typical uh center fire high power round, um, the ideal place to true is uh, right as that round is starting to go, just before it goes transonic, the reason that's the ideal range is because none of the messiness of transonic stability has affected the trajectory to that point. So you really are just narrowing on the muzzle velocity as the biggest variable. Um, now, for some cartridges, that's 800 meters. For some, that's 1200 or further. So you know what distance. And now, if, if you have a range that's limited to a thousand, let's say you have a 300 Norma you know, the supersonic range of close to 1,500, depending on your DA, um, and you're shooting on a 1,000-yard range, well, you obviously can't true it at that distance. And so you could still true it at a 1,000, but you ha- what you have to understand is at every incremental distance shorter than the transonic range, you're accepting a greater degree of uncertainty in your solution. You know, if you try to true a 300 norm at 400 yards, it's all uncertainty, right? Your group is bigger than the amount of drop that you have, you know, or, or it's comparable to the amount of drop that you have. So it really um, puts a lot of uncertainty on your muzzle velocity. At 1,000, you're a whole lot better off than 400, but you're not going to get as good of a result as if you were able to true at, you know, Thirteen,
0: fourteen hundred. Now, O'Brien, just uh, real quick to clarify, because guys had, did ask this question too. When you, when because we're talking transonic, subsonic, supersonic, this that. In for a general rule of thumb, are you using like thirteen hundred feet per second as like that that band of area where you're saying I want a true for transonic or to stay out of that transonic? Um, noise, are you are you going at like 1,300 or are you trying to say, well, under these conditions for this bullet, it's not 1,120 where I go subsonic, it's 1,135, so it's here, or are you just saying 1,300 feet per second, that's a good area?
1: Yeah, we're not splitting hairs on that. 1,340 is Mach 1.2 at in ambient conditions, but I, I would... What I would look for more, Frank, than that exact velocity, is to pick a target that you have a high degree of certainty in hitting. So let's say you've got a a truing bar with like a steel target at a thousand meters, but your um, thirteen hundred feet a second range is isn't until like eleven fifty. Okay, I but the but the target at eleven fifty, all you have to shoot into is like a sloped dirt bank. Okay, that. If you hit short, it'll hit closer. If you hit high, it'll be farther. And you can't really resolve a puff cloud in the dust as well as you can an impact on steel on a truing bar. So, in that scenario, I would I would actually pick the closer target to true in just because you have better resolution on where your where your shot's actually hitting. Um, you know, guessing where your bullets hitting and and reversing a muzzle velocity from that it's only ever going to be as good as you can pinpoint the shot location. And, you know, you want to, and another thing is the reflectivity of the target. You know, if you have that sloping dirt bank and you range it, are you ranging the foot of it or the top of it? There could be a plus or minus 10 meter distance there. But if you have a highly reflected target at a thousand meters, I would true on that before I true on a poor quality target at, uh, you know, a 1, thousand, 1150. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. So that's because that was the question. People just wanted to know because we're using the word, you know, transonic and transitions and things. And they're like, well, where is that? What is that? So they were just. But yeah, that makes total sense. And and I like I talk about that quite a bit with people who do shoot steel, you know, things like putting a water line on it. So we know everybody's aiming at the same place and then measuring our impact based off of a water line. You know, so you can resolve it exactly what you're saying that you want to be able to resolve better than just having a distance. So if your farthest distance is is as you put it, a a, a poor choice, we'll bring it in a little bit to your best choice for resolution. Yeah, exactly. Nice, nice. Hey, I think we're we're right about at the hour for everybody. And rather than get into a new topic that'll take us off, um, I'll I'll I'll, I'll basically wrap it up here. I don't know if you guys have anything that, uh, I know we talked early on with some of the new products that you launched, but you guys do have, uh, information on the burger website, uh, dot com, And, and you can go look at the stuff the guys are putting out. Cause during this, uh, sort of lockdown crisis we have, you guys are putting out a lot of hard data for people to go and educate themselves and to read about this and, so I don't know if there's a- anything else you guys are, are looking at but this is a great time to plug it
2: yeah like the uh, like you said the um, you know the the noBSbccom uh, has a lot of articles that Brian has written um, uh, that kind of cover all these sort of key aspects of, of this topic and how we want to kind of frame this conversation and uh, uh, you know, and our, our, our web like uh, capstonepg.com has links to all of our products so that capstone is burger vitavori, lapua and sk Rimfire, and it, all that stuff in you know in addition to uh its guys has 22 rimfire rifles and they want to get tested done like uh, uh, hang on here. yeah
0: you're breaking up again uh, so let me go so you, you got the capstone is is the burger lapua sk um in in stuff you were getting that weird but the more you talk it seems like it wants to do it to you when you first start you're clear and then as you go on it gets well, bubbly but um, i'll
2: just leave it th- i'll just leave it there Frank
0: cool cool yep. no i appreciate it. i just wanted to follow because you were but yeah capstone and Com- matter of fact i just grabbed from mile high this week i grabbed some midas plus so um that that stuff i'm gonna i'm gonna give a try
1: yeah, that, that's one of the best in my voodoo, Frank. I've tested all of the, you know, SK and Lapua Rimfire types, and uh, Midas Plus and Center X are the two that my voodoo likes best.
0: Nice. Yeah, I'm, I just got a – matter of fact, it's sitting right here, and the bag's still out because I, I had to grab a, a couple hundred rounds of uh, 6x47, so I, I got a few boxes of those, and, and then uh, they had some Midas Plus there, and I said, wait a minute, I think I need some uh, – Midas plus two on top of the six by 47. So uh, good stuff there. (laughs) Yep. Cool. Um, I'm going to close this guys out. I'll do the music and then I'll just hit you on the offside. But I appreciate you guys coming on. We're going to do this next week. We have a lot more questions to get to, but some of the topics I know will get us, you know, really big and I don't want to start a topic and, and, and no, we're going to be coming, you know, it'll, it'll take us two hours into this. So uh, I'm going to, I'm measuring them out, but keep the questions coming for these guys. Uh, We're, you know, a lot of them are overlapping as we know they will be everybody getting access to Brian and, and Emil there to, to, to say, Hey, you know, what about this? What about that? They, they all want to get really deep into the weeds with you guys. And we have 10 episodes to do that. So if we take these as, as, as blocks like this, I think it'll work out for everybody without over fire hosing them and then them going, what? Wait a minute. That was 50 topics. So uh, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll keep it this way.
1: All right. Sounds good, man. We'll pick it up in a couple weeks then.
0: Yeah. Next week we got another one, I believe. And and we're going to keep this going. We, we got a, uh, about seven or so episodes to go and, and, and that'll be great. But I appreciate you guys coming on and, uh, uh, talking about this stuff and answering these questions, I, I think everybody's going to get a ton out of it. My pleasure, Frank. Thank you. Do that. Oh, cool.